If you are here and visiting, we're glad you're here, and we want you to uh, feel welcome. We're all glad to, uh, to get to know you and uh, are seeking to try to please the Lord and uh, to study his word. In the account that God gave of the deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt in the Exodus, in Exodus chapter 14, the very next chapter tells about the song of praise of Moses as they were delivered from bondage in Egypt by the mighty hand of God. The very same type of thing occurs in the book of Judges. In chapter 4, you read the account of God delivering the Israelites from the hand of the Canaanites and Sisera, the commander of the army. And in chapter 5, verse 1, then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang on that day, praising God for the victory that he had given. It's important that when God gives victories and blessings, we thank and praise him without delay. That we immediately turn to God and tell him how much we appreciate his deliverance and that we give him the glory and the credit for the victories that he provides. I want us to look this morning at some things in Judges 4 and 5. We will probably uh, look at some more things uh, about this deliverance next Sunday as well. But we'll start by this morning noticing the same basic pattern we noticed last week, that we begin with the sin of the Israelites. In Judges 4 and verse 1, Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. We might say they had a relapse. Sin just continues to repeat itself among the Israelites. And it appears that they only manage to be faithful as long as a particular deliverer lived, sometimes not even that long. But in this case, as long as Ehud lived, they were faithful to God, quote unquote, but as soon as he died, they were right back worshiping the idols again. Commitment that depends on somebody is not real commitment. It wasn't that they were committed to the Lord. The Lord didn't die when Ehud died. They seemed to be more personally committed to him. There may be times in your life when some influential person has been present in your life that you've done well. When somebody was perhaps twisting your arm and encouraging you, you've been faithful. But when you lost contact with that person, when that person died, when that person wasn't prodding you anymore, you went right back into the old habits, the old pattern of life. What we need is a commitment to the Lord and not continue going back into sin. But then, uh, well, in, verse, in chapter 5, in verse 8, one of the things that you see is that new gods were chosen. And so part of their sin involved the choice of these idol gods to worship. When they did that then, God brought oppression upon them, which he does over and over again in the book of Judges, in verse 2 of chapter 4. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoim. And the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had 900 iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. 
Sometimes you have to get your fingers burned to learn not to touch the stove. It looks to me like this is basically what the Lord's trying to do with the Israelites. They have followed after the idol gods of the Canaanites, so he brings the Canaanite armies against them to cause them to realize how unfortunate their choice had been. And these Canaanites were strong. Sisera had 900 iron chariots. This was the beginning of the Iron Age. And the Israelites did not possess iron technology. From what I understand, they used these chariots kind of like a platform that would be very effective to be able to pick off the fleeing soldiers of the enemy. They particularly used the chariots in the more open plains. And they were, they were a very good way of being able to outrun uh, your opponent and be able to be on an elevated surface to be able to spot him and to kill him. It was very intimidating. And these Canaanites oppressed the, Israel, uh, oppressed the Israelites severely for 20 years. In chapter 5, in the Song of Deborah, in verse 6, in the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted, and travelers went in roundabout ways. The peasantry ceased. They ceased in Israel. People didn't feel safe to leave their homes anymore because the Canaanites were there oppressing the people. When they traveled, they had to, avoid, uh, to resort to, to side roads to try to avoid being detected. In verse 8, not only were new gods chosen, but he says, then war was in the gates, not a shield or a spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. They didn't have the weapons to be able to defend themselves. There was really not anything they could do about this oppression. They didn't have the iron that the Canaanites had. And so they, they had people. But those people did not have the strength to be able to defend themselves. It was a very terrible time. 20 years of oppression. Remember there were, I believe, 8 years before Othniel delivered them and then 18 years before Ehud delivered them. Now there's 20 years of oppression. And it's severe oppression. God's trying to teach them a lesson. He's trying to help them see the folly of them going back into sin again and again. And, and each time the lesson gets a little bit uh, more harsh, a little bit stronger. In these cases, a little longer, trying to, to make them feel the seriousness of their sin. But then, as in the story of Ehud, God gave deliverance to the people, but he did it again in a rather unusual way, in fact, several unusual ways. In chapter 4 and verse 4, now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time, and she used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor. And take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. And I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon, 
and I will give him into your hand. One of the things that you see so prominently in this story is that the Lord was the one in charge. The Lord was the one that through his prophetess Deborah called the general, Barak, to summon the troops. And God is the one who determined where the battle would be fought. He determined that he would draw Sisera out to the Israelite army at the river Kishon. That was a pretty strange place for God to decide to fight the battle with the Canaanites. It was the very type of place, a low plain area, where Sisera was the strongest, where his iron chariots were the most effective. Time and time again, when enemies attacked, the Israelites would retreat to the hill country. And it was rare when the enemy was able to defeat the Israelites in the hill country. But this isn't where God sent Barak and his army. He said, I want you to go down there by the river. Down in that low plain area. The very place where Sisera would have the greatest advantage. And there God says, I will give him into your hand. God was going to win the victory for his people. Who were outmanned. And outgunned, and, and who were in the very place where they would be the most vulnerable. In chapter 4 and verse 12, then they told Sisera that Barak the son of Abinoam had gone up to Mount Tabor. And Sisera called together all his chariots, 900 iron chariots, and all the people who were with him. From Harosheth Hagoim to the river Kishon. It works. Well, it works to the point of getting Sisera to bring his whole army there to fight the Israelites. Can you imagine what you'd have felt like if you'd have been one of these poor soldiers in Barak's army? As you see, all the Canaanite troops, with every last one of the 900 iron chariots, drawing close to battle there by the river. And you can imagine how much trembling and fear there must have been in the camp of the Israelites. And in verse 14, Deborah said to Barak, Arise, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Herosheth Hagwim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not even one was left. A tremendous victory! Just as the Lord had predicted, he defeated, totally defeated, the army of Sisera before Barak. In verse 23, so God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the sons of Israel. In chapter 5 and verse 3, hear, O kings, give ear, O rulers, I to the Lord I will sing, I will sing praise to the Lord 
the God of Israel. The Lord won a tremendous victory. But I bet you're wondering how he did it. it because you read the narrative account and you're thinking, what did the Lord do? How did he manage to just all of a sudden reverse things and the Canaanites are fleeing? Well, I think we get some clues in Deborah's song in chapter 5. Chapter 5 and verse 4. Lord, when thou didst go out from Seir, when thou didst march from the field of Edom, the earth quaked, the heavens also dripped. Even the clouds dripped water. Now that's one clue. We can associate this event with rain. The clouds are dripping water, so to speak. In verse 20 of chapter 5, let's start in verse 19. The kings came and fought. They then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanak near the waters of Megiddo. They took no plunder in silver. The stars fought from heaven. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. O oh, my soul, march on with strength. Now do you see what happened? The Kishon River, its torrent, its, its current swept away the Canaanite army. Now, I suppose the Canaanite army had sense enough not just to drive headlong into the Kishon River. So what I'm assuming must have happened is that as those clouds dripped water, they dripped enough water that the Kishon River overflowed. Now, you think about what the consequences of that would be to an army that's primarily depending on 900 iron chariots in a way rather similar to the defeat of the Egyptians in the Exodus. When you get those iron chariots in flooded land, it gets muddy and the chariots won't go. And so the people have to get off the chariots and flee away on foot and, and they lose their advantage. These iron chariots that had been such a big help to him, them suddenly now are, are an impediment. They're, they're a hindrance to them. I, there, there were rainy seasons in Israel, but I am again assuming that Sisera had enough sense not to bring out his chariot division in the rainy season. I suppose that the Lord probably brought a downpour and a flooded Kishon River at, a, at the very time that nobody would have expected that. And thus the Lord won the great victory. The same God who in the Exodus turned the water into dry land, now turned the dry land into a sea of mud, and the Canaanites were defeated. Now there's an interesting angle to this. The Canaanites, as most of those people, worshipped various nature gods like Baal. And Baal was supposedly the storm god. He was supposedly the God who controlled the weather, but the Lord uh, won up to him. The Lord showed that he was the one in control of the weather, and he controlled it to the disadvantage of the Canaanites and to the advantage of his people to whom he gave a great victory. What I'd like to do is to mention a couple of lessons that I think we can learn from this story. And one is a lesson that we can learn from almost every story in the Bible. 
but I'd like for you to think about it here because I think it's very obvious. And that is that God gained the victory and he used men in doing so. There is a tendency that we have to go to one or the other extreme on the idea of God's sovereignty versus man's responsibility. Our general tendency is to exalt men and forget God. So we usually give lots of credit to, to men. We focus on all that they have done and their skill and their power and their resources and their strategy and their whatever. That's a mistake. Who won the victory? against Sisera. God did. Who got the praise and the credit and the glory? The Lord did. There is an opposite extreme that's also invalid, however, and that is sometimes we exalt God and we don't take our personal responsibility seriously. It's sort of like saying, well, I'm just going to wait for God to win my victories for me. And I'm just going to sort of sit back and relax and watch him do it. Sometimes people will do that when it comes to various sorts of temptations and sins they're struggling with in their lives. They may say, well, you know, I know God will, God will, God will take care of me. I'll just wait for God to, 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 to do this for me. You know, they're involved in some sort of a sin. And they're like, well, if God wants to get me out of this, I guess, I guess I'll just let him do it. It'll just be up to him. <laughs> well, now that's a cop-out. Because the same God that won the victory won the victory by using Barak's army. God told Barak, now I want you to summon the 10,000 troops. And I want you to go down to the river Kishon. And once the Canaanites started fleeing, he used the Israelites to kill them. There is a two-way street in the things that we do for the Lord. And we must never excuse our failures to serve God on the fact of, well, I'm just sort of waiting on God to do it for me. The balance is God gets the credit, but he conditions his help on our fulfilling the roles and responsibilities that he has given us. The Bible's balanced always about that. There's always a great emphasis on God's control and God's victory and God's glory. And there is always shown the part man must play as he must be responsible to serve God in the way that he says. In Galatians chapter 1, we see applications that we can make of these principles in our own lives. And particularly as we seek to focus on God as the one who gives the victory. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us out of this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to, hint to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. There is something we must do in escaping the present evil age. But the emphasis, as it was in the story of Deborah, is on the fact that Jesus gave himself, Jesus delivers us, according to the will of God, to the glory of the Lord. 
When we think about our greater deliverance from the bondage of sin, the credit and the glory belong to God. It is to him that we owe the victory. We have our role to play. And we must do as God has, suggest, has told us. But he gets the glory because it's him that gave himself and that delivered us. Or look at Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3 and verse 20. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. It's God's strength, God's power working in us that transforms us. We must cooperate with that. We must allow him to work within us. But it is him who has the power, and it's to him that the glory for our transformation belongs. And then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 11, To this end also we pray for you always, that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power, in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. As we fulfill these desires for goodness, as we do the work of faith, we do it with the power that God provides so that God is glorified in us. Everything that we do in the service of God depends on our cooperation with the Lord, but it is his power, it is his strength, it is his deliverance, and we must give the glory and credit to him. When we read the song of Deborah in Judges chapter 5, there will be some parts of the song we'll look at next week that focus on the various things that individuals did as the Lord used them to gain the victory. But the focus and the emphasis and the glory for the victory over the Canaanites was the Lord's. May we never forget to glorify and praise God for the victories and the strength that he gives us. If you're not a Christian,